0: scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to chapter 11, verse 1. Um, it's found on page 815 in your pew Bible. So if you'd like to turn there, we'll, we'll read the text together. I wonder if you'd join me in honor of this reading of God's word. Please stand. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I'm not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever goes, uh, gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning.
1: My name is Mike. I'm the interim pastor here at Trinity Community Church. Really happy to be with you here this morning. If you're visiting today, whether you are presently following Jesus or, or whether you'd consider yourself more of a skeptic, really happy to have you here and hope you'll feel comfortable talking afterward with, with any of us, asking any questions. So investing, investment, all that is something I know very little about, uh, by which I mean nothing. Um, but here's an investment analogy. So let's say someone approaches me, right? Let's say someone approaches me and they want me to invest my money in something. So they, they say, OK, it's really, really important that you invest in this. So I, I try, to get, try to collect some more information on what it is that I'm expected to invest in. And so I ask, OK, so, so w- with this investment, what's the, what's the risk? What's, how risky is this investment? And the guy answers, I, I can't tell you that. Okay. Weird. Um, how about this? How about I ask you, how lucrative is, is this investment, right? What, what should motivate me to, to put my money down on this? And again, he, he responds, you know what? I, I'm not going to say any of that sort of thing. I just really need you to give me your money, and I'm not going to provide you with any expectations about what, 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 what risk you're subjecting your money to, nor am I going to try to motivate you with anything about this investment. You just need to, to give me your money. This would be crazy, right? This would be, it would be crazy for me to even consider, consider that kind of an investment. But I think sometimes, as believers, when we think about what it means to follow Jesus in his mission, we almost feel like we're in that place. We feel like we're being asked to invest in something without any sense of what it's going to cost us and without any sense of, of what should motivate us to take part. And that's very much what I think today's passage is about. So today we're going to ask, in following Jesus, what is the risk and what do we stand to gain? What is the risk and what do we stand to gain? But before diving in, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would... Write our hearts before your word today. I, I pray this morning, just I, I openly pray for, for my preaching, that you would bring to light in, in, in our minds anything that I omit, anything that I fail to include, that you would correct anything that I get wrong, and that you would take all the glory and the credit for anything I get right words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So today, we wrap up this, this discourse that Jesus has been giving, and he's instructing his disciples before sending them out on mission. So today, that, that conversation comes to an end, and so, we're, like I said, we're going to sort of find out what kind of risk to expect, we're also going to find out the reward to expect, the reward that should motivate us. So first, what we're going to find out is, is our expectation. We're going to find that in following Jesus, here's the risk, everything. We are risking everything in following Jesus. Let's reread verses 34 to 38. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So Jesus is nearing the end of this discourse and he says something that should catch us off guard. He says he didn't come to bring peace. He came instead to bring a sword. And this seems super violent coming off the lips of Jesus, right? I mean, this whole time we've been talking about how Jesus is the one who's bringing the kingdom of heaven, which means flourishing, which means wholeness, which means all these good things coming to earth. If he's the one that's bringing that, how could he say that he's come to bring a sword? And and moreover, the way that he's instructed his disciples to live, I mean, they're, they're folks who are going to turn the other cheek. They're, they're not going to retaliate. That's not to say that they won't resist, but their resistance is, is going to be passive resistance. It's going to be a resistance accomplished by living the way of the kingdom. So to me, that sounds like peace brought about by peace, right? So how could he say he's bringing a sword? So it's kind of interesting. For, for a lot of those folk in the first century who are awaiting the Messiah— a sword is precisely the way they thought the Messiah was going to bring peace. So they believed the Messiah was going to come as this kind of unstoppable warlord, as somebody who was going to bring down all the opposing kingdoms of the world. And yes, they expected injustice and tyranny to end. They expected them to end because the Messiah was going to crush them, right? They expected it all to happen at once, and to happen through, through overthrow. And then God's people can more or less stand on the sidelines and chew popcorn while it's happening. And so you've got to imagine that that's, for some of the disciples, they're kind of thinking like, all right, finally, Jesus is going to bring the sword, right? They always imagined that when the kingdom came, there would be a sword involved. They just always imagined they were going to be the ones wielding it. But the picture that Jesus paints here is a different one. The disciples are not wielding the sword. They're the victims of it. Their loyalty to Jesus is pitting them against all the priorities of the world around them, even the priorities of their own families. And they're being forced to choose between kingdom and kin. So how does that work out? Why is it that becoming loyal to Jesus would, would cause tensions in our family relationships. Why is it that our, our friends would stop calling us friend just because we became loyal to Jesus above all else? In our culture, we, we seem to have some pretty misguided expectations when it comes to family and friends. Like It's understood that we should be loyal to, to family and friends, right? Family first. But that loyalty sometimes really just amounts to tribalism. So let's say I, let's say I get into an argument with a coworker, right? I just I dig into this person. I, I make them look foolish. I humiliate them for, for something that they said to me. And it's really a disproportionate response, but still, I'm feeling awesome afterward, feeling very, very powerful. Made this person feel so dumb. And I go home that night. To my family, and, and maybe I describe what happened to my family. I tell them everything I said, and what I'm looking forward to is them being like, yeah, that person deserved that. You, you did what was right. You did the right thing. They had it coming. You put them in their place. We're all going to glory together and how awesome I am. But what if they don't say those things? What if they have a very different reaction? What if they're like, ouch, you seriously said that? You're crazy, and you need to give just a huge apology to that person now. Like, find out where they live, and apologize. It's terrible what you did. Now, how would I feel? I think in some ways I'd feel betrayed. I think a lot of us would feel betrayed if we were really honest with ourselves. It's a fascinating reaction, but I think we would because family first, right? They're supposed to support me, whether or not I'm in the right. It doesn't matter if I'm in the right. I'm family, right? But instead... I'd realize in that moment that my family was more loyal to the truth than they were to me. So maybe I feel betrayed. Maybe I lash out. It hurts to realize that you are not the one dictating someone else's decisions. I wonder if that's what's going on here in this passage. If sometimes we can anticipate conflict with family and friends... Because our loyalty to Jesus will mean that we can't agree to all the same things that they can. We can't do all the same things that they do any longer. Followers of Jesus give their allegiance to him and to his kingdom. Jesus has their highest loyalties. And while he absolutely leads his disciples to love and care for their families, if a time comes when the expectations of family and the expectations of the kingdom are in conflict, the choice is clear to a disciple and the result will be division. Relationships cut apart as though by a sword. Family members and friends may lash out because someone they most trusted now trusts in Jesus most. There will be friends that you made coming together around a common addiction, and Jesus will call you out of that addiction and therefore away from those friends. There will be friends who, up to this point have seen you as the sort of reasonable, thoughtful person, but as soon as you open your mouth to align with Jesus, you will be, at best ignorant and at worst, a fundamentalist. Following Jesus will not make you popular or culturally relevant. People aren't going to be begging for your opinion. We aren't going to be seen as the voice of reason. A lot of times we'll be seen as. and it should break our hearts. It starts to become really clear that Jesus isn't just asking us to love him more than our families or friends. He's asking us to love him more than ourselves. Because loving Jesus in this way will put not just our relationships at risk, but us at risk. He compares discipleship to picking up a cross, right? To to pick up, An execution device. Like, the cross has become a symbol for us as Christians, and and rightly so. But because of that, sometimes we, we lose the force of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, pick up your syringe of potassium chloride and follow me. Hoist that electric chair onto your back. We're going now. Bring your noose. Take your cross and follow me. That's the force of what he's saying, that in following him, we are prepping ourselves for self-sacrifice. Now, many of us might be asking at this point, who does Jesus think he is to ask this of me? So, like, if I were in a class in college and, and my prof were to say that I need to adopt his perspective on the world over every other perspective, define my life by it even if that puts me into conflict with family and friends and everyone else, I'd say that guy's the most arrogant person I've ever met, right? And, and why? Why would I say that? I'd say it because there's no real difference between him and me. There's, there's nothing special about being him. There's nothing special about being me. We're the same. So why is it that I should take his word as law? But here's the thing, the writers of the Gospels are claiming that there really is something special about Jesus, that there really is a reason why you should take his words with far more weight than you take the words of any other human person. The reason that they give, especially Paul, later on in the New Testament, all the New Testament writers, in many ways the reason they give is the resurrection. I think sometimes we have to take a step back and consider what an amazing thing the New Testament is when you think about it. The New Testament is a collection of folks writing within 40, 50 years of Jesus' death and all claiming that this wild historical event took place that is world-changing, that we now live in a world in which a resurrection has taken place. In other words, when you're reading the books of the New Testament, you're reading testimonies. People who actually think that this man rose from the dead. This would be the same as me getting up now and saying, guys, MLK didn't stay dead. He got back up, right? He got off the the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, and he walked around, he showed himself to a whole bunch of people and proved everything that he said. It it would be that absurd for me to claim that. Yet our New Testament is filled with claims that Jesus didn't stay dead. And if Jesus didn't stay dead, then everything he said and everything he asks of us is validated. He is Messiah. He is God with us. And he can certainly ask us to pick up our crosses. It means there really is something special about Jesus. So what's our expectation? On the mission of Jesus, we should expect to risk everything. And Jesus says that if we don't, then we're not worthy of him. That's not to say that as you walk through discipleship in your life, you won't run into Tension within yourself. He's not saying that. You will. It doesn't mean that you're going to just walk perfectly. When Jesus says that if you don't have this kind of loyalty, you're not worthy of me, he's not saying that you need to earn your salvation by works or anything. That's not what's in view here. Instead, he's saying that you can't love the true God and love idols and act like those two things are in conflict. Being a disciple means being all in. Being a disciple means being all in. We should expect to risk everything because part of what it means to be a disciple is to put everything on the table, everything on the line. To align our entire lives according to what Jesus says. But Here's the thing, why should we? So that's our expectation, right? We're going to risk everything, but why should we? Like, even if Jesus is the Messiah, what reason would I have to go through social rejection and being caricatured in the media and go through the fight against sin, not to mention my brothers and sisters all across the world who are putting their very lives on the line, facing torturous deaths? Why would we do that? Well, Jesus tells us why. In following Jesus, we're risking everything because we have everything to gain. Verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I've been reading this novel, this this fiction novel, called Infinite Jest. And at one point, there's these two spies in the book who who are in this outcropping, it's like mountain outcropping in Arizona, and they're talking to each other. And their conversation goes all over the place, and it spans the, the whole length of the first half of the book. But in any case, at one point in the conversation, one of the spies starts telling the story of what's happened in in Canada. And again, this is fiction. This isn't actually like a real thing that happened, but still. So this is one of the spies. He talks about, all right, so this secret experiment took place in Canada. And the experiment, he said, it started out with animals, right? And so what happened is these, these scientists, they put these implants into the brains of these animals so that every time they would hit a switch they'd receive this just tremendous shock to the pleasure center of their brains. Anytime they hit that switch, they'd receive this shock to the pleasure center of their brains. He talks about how these animals, once they experience that shock for the first time, they're so overwhelmed with obsession over the switch that they just strike it and strike it and strike it and strike it until they just starve to death. The animals just die by the switch because they have no motivation to go elsewhere for sustenance or or whatever. They just die by the switch because the pleasure is too overwhelming. But then it gets crazier. So it leaks that this experiment has taken place, right? It leaks that, that they've found out how to do this with animals. And suddenly, in front of the lab where it's taking place, there's this giant line of, of people wanting the implant, right? And so instantly, the Canadian government, they gather together all these psychologists. They're all game together because they, they're like, all right, if there's this giant line of people, we need to profile them. This is way too good of an opportunity to miss. We need to interview them and profile these subjects to figure out what kind of crazy person would volunteer for something so terrible. And the spy says the results were really, really disturbing because every single one of the profiles came back irrefutably, perfectly, 100% normal. These were normal people. Willing to die at the hands of pleasure. When I got to that point in the book, I was just floored, as I often am when reading this author, and I, I remembered it while studying this passage. Jesus is saying that our relentless, hurried frantic, very characteristically American pursuit of pleasure, our pursuit of our best self, our pursuit of tapping every single inch of our potential, our good before the good of others, Jesus is saying that this way of life, it doesn't end in life. It ends in death. Our our good right to the pursuit of happiness. That's a good right. It has become the single aim of our entire lives. A right has become our purpose. And it is the very thing that will kill us. Guys, life will not be found scratching our fingernails along that little glass screen. Life will not be found only surrounding ourselves by friends who will stroke and protect our egos. Life will not be found by busily, desperately filling our lives doing a lot of stuff that don't have any true meaning at all. Life isn't found. Seeking intimacy through an image on a laptop computer, these things aren't real. They're pleasurable, but they're not real and they're killing you. We are betraying ourselves, we're betraying our children. Whoever finds his life will lose it. The person sitting across from you, they're real. All of us in this room together, we're real. These relationships are real. What the Lord is calling us to is real. He's real. His kingdom is real. These things are real. And we will find life in them. Whoever loses his life, even if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll find it. This is the amazing paradox at the heart of following Jesus. If you work to preserve your life, you put it at risk. If you put your life at risk, you preserve your life. Everything hard that he asks of us is in reality the way to life. Jesus is telling us how to live life as it was meant to be lived. And he should know. Right? Jesus is the smartest guy who ever walked on this planet. If he's telling you how to live your life, it's because he knows how to live life. And he isn't asking us to do anything for him that he hasn't done for us. Later on in Matthew, we'll, we'll hear Jesus talk about how the the rulers of the Gentiles, he's probably talking about the Romans, how the rulers of the Gentiles, how they they rule over their people with cruelty and they use their power to give themselves the best lives they can possibly have. So their privilege and their influence, it has a clear purpose, it's to serve themselves, to achieve their best lives now. This is the way of glory, after all. But Jesus says that anyone who wants to learn to live like Jesus won't do that, because Jesus didn't do that. The king of the universe didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came announcing the coming of God's kingdom just as he brought, but as he brought that kingdom, there there weren't weapons in his hands, there were nails. On the cross, Jesus delivers himself over to suffer our destiny so that we can be given a new one. And he delivers a people for himself and he makes a way for humanity to receive the one real source of life, restored relationship to our maker. The kingdom doesn't come by violent overthrow. It it arrives through a divine act of grace so that anyone who is sick from sin and sick from empty pleasure can be made clean and follow Jesus toward a new way of life That's what we call the gospel. But here's what's wild. Check out how Jesus ends this discourse. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Some of the language here is is somewhat confusing, but if you keep in mind that what he means by receive, it doesn't just mean like take them into their home. It means receive the message. That to receive a disciple, for a disciple, let's say you're approached by a disciple, and you receive them. What that means is you've taken in this message and repented and believed And so in a sense, you're receiving the disciple, but really you're receiving Jesus. And in receiving Jesus, you're receiving your maker, God himself. That relationship is restored. And so Jesus describes sort of three messengers. It's it's always the disciple in mind, but the disciple sort of as prophet, as a righteous person, as a disciple. And in each, the messenger is received, and the, the person who receives them receives the same reward as the messenger. Interesting, right? It's about these messengers announcing Jesus and someone hearing and coming to faith. People are receiving from people who have received. In other words, when we receive the gospel and see that relationship restored with our Father, we go forward into the world to give that same reward to others, to multiply the gift of the gospel So in other words, the motivation to repent and believe and follow Jesus, it's not just so that we can find life. It's so that others can find it too. In in the mission of Jesus, we aren't just passive observers. One of the most amazing things about God's grace, it's not just that he's forgiven hopeless sinners. It's that he's forgiven hopeless sinners and incorporated them into his plan for the world. What could possibly qualify me for that? Jesus. Jesus. The cross can qualify me for that. Because of the cross, no one is disqualified from being a part of God's plan in the world. All of us, no matter our background or experience or our past or our wounds, all of us are invited to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. Not only do we receive the message of the good news, but we become messengers of the good news. Announcing to everyone that we can that life is offered to them. That life is available in Jesus. That, it, that they don't have to measure up. They don't have to find some fictitious pleasure out there that will finally like, bring meaning to their life. Meaning is being offered to them. Real humanity is being offered to them. And it is being offered without a price tag. On the mission of Jesus, we risk everything because, we have ev- because there's everything to gain, not just for ourselves, for the life of the world. So, we, we here at Trinity Community Church have been trying to recalibrate ourselves more and more toward the mission of God in this world. Thinking deep, deeper about what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and what he asks for us, and, and Matthew is just a continuously challenging book to read because of that. But I think today's contribution is really, really, really important as we go forward. Guys, you're going to get rejected. Don't be surprised. Be heartbroken. But don't be surprised. And don't be discouraged. Because even though you'll face rejection, there will be other times. Be confident of this. There will be other times where you will be received and there will be repentance and belief. Follow Jesus, because by his cross you have nothing to lose. Follow Jesus, because by his cross you have everything to gain. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for your faithfulness to your people. Thank you, Lord, that we do not have to look out at a world in which many Christian perspectives are, are starting to be marginalized. We don't have to look out at that and and feel fear, Jesus. You have overcome the world. And So even though we will face tribulation, we are trusting you, Father, that we will also see the power of the gospel at work, that we will see more and more people throw themselves on the grace of the Lord, and that you will lead us daily to throw ourselves on your grace anew. God, I pray that among us, we would be a community that reminds each other of the gospel, We cannot live day-to-day lives without being reminded, without reminding ourselves of our status as hopeless sinners and reminding ourselves of our status as adopted and beloved children in Christ. I pray that we would feel a responsibility to each other, to encourage each other in grace. And God, I pray That through us, many would come to be a part of your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. You ask much of us, but it's only because you have so much more to give. Amen.